Well, we are in the final week of our Unplugged series, and uh, what this is is three weeks where we're just exploring what does real relationships look like in a digital world, and these are relationships with God and relationships with one another, and how has the digital world uh, impacted and changed that, and how must we adjust to it and reclaim the truth that God has given to us, and and we've, we've said this series is not a series against technology or social media or any of these things. It's just saying in light of this new world we live in, what is God's truth? How do we find what it means to actually have freedom and peace and still have these healthy relationships in this world? And so that is the goal of this series. And as you might have noticed from the intro series or the video today, is today we're looking at contentment and comparisons. And that is something that in the digital social media world is something that is really amazing and helpful to have, um, and it can be very destructive. I love the fact that I can, if I want to fix something on my car or around the house or anything, I can just look it up on YouTube, and you can certainly find somebody from the Midwest who will show you <laughs> how to fix any car or anything in your house. It's just, it's the way, it's amazing tool. Uh, if you want to cook a recipe, you can get a mi- bunch of different recipes with the reviews and the adjustments. It just shows up right there. Uh, and all of these are really good tools, even Pinterest. What a great place to get good ideas if you want to do a project or uh, decorate something or remodel something. It's, so there's a lot of benefit to these tools. And with those benefits, though, sometimes what happens is that we can also, it can be a place that breeds discontentment in our lives. In fact, the researchers have found that uh, people's use of Facebook, that they have, uh, studies have been done that people, before they use Facebook, about 60% of the time would report that they're more satisfied with life and more happy than after they get off their Facebook session. And so there's something that happens when we spend time online and spend time uh, in the social media world that can, although it can be very helpful, it can also and has been proven to be kind of destructive to people's satisfaction and their contentment in life. And it kind of makes sense. Because what's different now is that we have a front row view to everything that people do. When I was growing up, if my friends went on vacation, they would go on vacation. They might say, hey, we're going to Hawaii. They would go to Hawaii, and two weeks later or whatever, they would come back, and I'd say, hey, how was vacation? They'd say, great, and that was it. That was how it worked. And, and, and there wasn't a lot of jealousy. Maybe you'd say, well, I would love to go there. But now we get to watch every moment of their vacation as it unfolds and say, well, that looks nice, much better than where I'm sitting right now at work. And it's very easy to look at what other people are doing and to have that creep in to provide discontentment. Now, again, I think it's great to share those photos. I think it's fun. I think it's a good part of it, but it can really get us to a place where we're involved in comparisons. In fact, it's been said that what happens with social media is we compare our behind-the-scenes lives with other people's highlight reels. See, we know what's actually happening behind the scenes in our lives. We know that maybe my marriage is going well, but there's, we're going through a tough spot. Or I know that vacation was pretty fun, but it really kind of rained most of the time. Or I knew that this road trip, yeah, the end destination was good, but I was ready to kick everyone out before we got there. We, we know the behind the scenes story in our lives, and it's very easy to know that and compare it to seeing other people's highlight reels. And subconsciously, it's very we're not making the connection that, wait, this is just the highlight reel. And I even know there's times when my wife and I have intentionally tried to share uh, kind of real life photos 
And, and I remember one time we were in a, on a road trip and all the kids were in the car and they're bigger now and so we barely fit into this rental car and uh, they had their feet kind of up near us and you know, bare feet, smelly teenage boy feet there and so we took a picture from the front of the car like, hey, this is real life. And people are like, oh, it's so cool how close you are as a family, you know. <laughs> And so it's very, and even in the normal things, people think it's the highlight reel. So this is what we're going to kind of explore today, and how do the comparisons breed that discontentment in our lives? And then most importantly, how do we reclaim and find what God has, the freedom that he speaks to us, that can give us to a point where we are content with the lives we have, but also to live in freedom that comes from knowing Christ. So that's where we're going. I want to invite you to pray with me today. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you uh, for the energy and the fun around this community today and just being reminded of all the ways that, and, and things that you are using to bring life and to help people be invited in to discovering a life in you. And Lord, now as we look to your word, we want that same thing to happen. We want our lives to be transformed by who you are and what you say about us. And so would you speak peace to us today? And, and freedom that comes from knowing you. And so, Lord God, now we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 4. You can use a real Bible or you can use a digital Bible. That is okay today. You do not have to unplug that. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, the, to really understand a lot of scripture, I, I just want you to kind of know this part when we read through, through scripture is Genesis chapter 1 through 11 sets the scene for the rest of the Bible. If we can understand those first 11 chapters, it helps us to understand the story really of God and his interaction with us. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this picture of God creating the world and it is good. He creates mankind and it is good. But the world is defined by what God determines is good and bad and uh, evil and right and wrong and all that. But a choice is given to mankind. And the choice is, will you trust God's version of right and wrong and what is good and what is bad? Or do you want to trust your own version of what is good and bad? And that's represented in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we find is that mankind decides, well, we don't fully trust God's version. We want to make up our own version. And immediately after that, what we have is guilt and shame because Adam and Eve, who are once naked and unashamed with one another, uh, trusting God's version of what is good, now they're wondering, is my version of what is good the same as hers? And they felt shame. I don't know. All of a sudden, these lines were blurred, and what was right and wrong, good and bad, was all in a spiral now that was going to spiral downward. The rest of the book of Genesis from four, chapters 4 through 11 show this downward spiral of humanity and how we kind of get totally caught up in this life where we are unsure of what is good and what is bad because as we're left to make our own decisions as finite beings, not knowing all the answers, it just gets messy. And so in chapter four, what we see is the very first step away from we, sin has entered the world. And now here's a, a story of two people named Cain and Abel. They're the sons of Adam and Eve. And we see how sin now creeps in. And the very first sin that they struggle with, I want uh, to look at this story. And it will introduce what we're talking about here today. So Genesis chapter four, it starts off and says, uh, Adam and Eve had a child. And they named him Cain. Eve says, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. 
I love it. I like to call my kids man children. So (laughs) Genesis chapter chapter four, verse two. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So where we are in the story is this. We have Abel who is described as basically he's a shepherd. He's tending to flocks. Cain, his brother, is some sort of gardener. He tills the ground. He cultivates the fruit and the vegetables. And that's, that's what he does. So he's kind of the farmer and his brother's a, a shepherd. And that's their two jobs. Now, they bring an offering to the Lord. Now, we don't know anything about this offering of how, why they need to bring an offering. Were they commanded to do so? Were there rules or regulations around it? There's no, there's no description to that. But what we do assume and understand is that they're, they have a closer, more direct relationship with God. Certainly, they've heard the story of sin. Certainly, they've heard about, uh, you know, kind of their beginnings. And so, whatever led them to it, they now are bringing offerings to the Lord. It says that Cain brings an offering, and all it describes is, if you notice there, is Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. That's all we know. And then Abel brought the firstlings. So in other words, the first fruits, he brought the best, the firstborn of his flock, and the fat portions of that. So what Abel brought was something that was highly valued, the firstborn of his flock, and then the fat portions, which in the ancient uh, Near Eastern world, the fat portions of the meat were actually um, the delicacy. That was the really expensive chunk of meat. And so that was a sacrifice to give that to God. And God accepts and says that he was pleased with Abel's offering and with Abel, and he was displeased with Cain. Now, we don't have any other description of why. Some might, you might just look at that and think, well, because God doesn't like fruit and vegetables, I mean, or whatever it might be. But what we really believe is that there was something more to this, these offerings. It wasn't the fruit and the vegetables that was the bad thing, because that was what Cain had. It's consistent with God's character that he wouldn't expect you to give something you don't have. But what we're assuming is that Abel gave his best. He gave something that cost him something. It was an actual sacrifice, and Cain somehow we, we assume gave what was left over. He went to God and he said, God, here's some kale. You know, I mean, that was <laughs> unacceptable offering to the Lord. <laughs> and so what we have here is we assume that whatever it was, it wasn't his best. It was some sort of leftover. It was kind of like when, it, when I was growing up and I lived, when I was really young, I lived in Minnesota and we didn't have fresh fruits and vegetables in the winter And um, so we ate a lot of canned vegetables, which I still think are way better than fresh because, I mean, you know, I didn't grow up in Encinitas. So, um, but I remember every time we had like a food drive at the school, my brother and I would look in the cabinet and we'd find things like a canned lima beans. Anyone remember those things? I don't even know if they do those anymore. Canned lima beans. And then we had this thing called vegol. Vegol was, come on, my Midwest people, you out there? Yeah. Vegol had like, carrots and peas and, and potatoes cut up in there. Yeah, man. So whenever we had one of those food drives, we'd be like, lima beans, veg all, homeless will love these. <laughs> so, and that was kind of what you do. We, we wanted to give the stuff we didn't want. 
And what happened here is that's most likely what Cain is doing. He's saying, God, here's the stuff I don't want anyway. You want an offering, here's an offering. And so God looks on favor with Abel's, but not on Cain's. Now verse six, or verse five, Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told his, Abel, his brother, this. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel and killed him. And God came to Cain and said, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's interesting that in scripture, we go from Adam and Eve experiencing shame because they made a choice. And, and, and likely in that, there was this insecurity that came in. The very next thing we see is there's jealousy with Cain and Abel. And jealousy actually then leads to anger, which leads to violence in this case. It spirals out of control pretty quickly. But notice God's response to Cain. It's, Cain, don't you understand Sin wants to be master over you. You got it. It's crouching at your door. He noticed Cain's heart was starting to already turn. And who knows what was going on? Was he looking at Abel and saying, well, why, why does he get to be the, the shepherd? Why does he get to give those? I, I, I mean, I'm out here tilling the ground. Of course my offering isn't that good. And there's this jealousy that's arising over God's response to his brother that's leading, this comparison is leading to discontentment with Cain, which ultimately spirals out of control. Scripture continues on that downward spiral, and it gets to a point in the book of Exodus chapter 20, where God gives the people the Ten Commandments. Sometimes you wonder, why did God ever give this law in the form of the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments were designed to turn people, to give people a picture of the heart and character of God. And in most of them, you can look it's all in response to this is how your hearts have gone away. And if you look at the 10th commandment, verse, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, it says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, covet your neighbor's wife or servants, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we found by the time God enacts this law and says, here, this is my heart, my character. Here's how your hearts have gone astray. We find that this comparison, this, this discontentment, this covetousness and envy has risen to the point where he says, listen, I don't want you to be people who are looking at others saying, I wish I had what they had. So what I want to do for the rest of today is I want to show three areas where I see us falling into the trap of comparisons that kind of take away our contentment. And then we want to look at the biblical response to these, which I believe actually speak freedom and life to us. So the first of those comparisons that we find that gets us to this point are the comparisons of our stuff. Now this is the most obvious one. We, we tend to compare what we have, our physical possessions to others. And again, this is kind of the, the low hanging fruit, the one that's most obvious. It's, oh, I wish I had that house or that car or man, that, those people dress so nicely. I wish I could dress like that or, or whatever it might be. And we can get caught up in looking at what other people have. Now, my guess is if I asked most of you in here, do you struggle with this? Most of us would say, well, not really. I'm totally happy. But what are those moments inside of us that kind of creep in when you think, I, I just kind of need that. And when we start thinking things like, well, 
As long, it just, so I get that, as long as I get to this, then the rest will be okay. Once we buy a house and are making our payments, then, then I'll be able to be more generous. Or then it's going to be, once I just get this car, I don't need another. This will be the last new car I need to get. You know what, if I just get the iPhone 8, okay, 10, the 11, as soon as I have that, then I'll have what I need. No, it's, the 11's not out yet, just so you know. And these creep in so subtly, especially in our country where we have kind of everything we need. We really do. Even those who have less have really all we need. But it's so easy to buy in to the lie that we need more. I like how Will Smith said it. He said this, too many people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't want to please people they don't know. It's easy in our country and, and when we have abundance to, do, to kind of fall into this mindset because we look around at what everyone else has and it's very easy for things to all of a sudden creep in and take a place in our lives that they don't belong. They rise up to the level of an idol in our lives. Tim Keller calls idols this. He says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I'll have that, then I will feel like my life has meaning. Then I know I'll have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. I bet none of you, well, I don't know. I bet most of us don't look at stuff and say, if, if I have that motorcycle, I'll feel significant and secure. If I just get new shoes, I'm going to feel secure. Probably we don't think that mentally. But subconsciously, do we? Are there things in our subconscious where we actually do kind of pursue things as if, if I could just have that, then things will be better. Then that's all I need. I know it's a struggle even among our young people. I know our high schoolers. In high school, if they don't have an iPhone, they actually get bullied. I know they do. It happens. I've seen it. I've heard it. And, and there's this, hey, if you don't have an iPhone, it's, it's actually an issue in our high schools, which is ridiculous. In the first service, when we had a bunch of our high schoolers here, they were saying amen to that and trying to get their parents to say, see, you don't mean to be bullied. <laughs> if only I had an iPhone, <laughs> then I would fit in. How many times do we look around, especially living in a place like this, and feel like, ah, I would fit in better if I had this. Just one more thing. You know, and sometimes as parents, we kind of cultivate this in our kids, do we not? We don't mean to. I remember when I was a kid, there was this big, just I, one of the Christmas, this is kind of the beginning of all the Christmas mayhem, or I don't know, at least as far as I remember it, Cabbage Patch Dolls were crazy. Anyone remember those Cabbage Patch Dolls? Yeah, come on, 80s. Um, and and it was like you had, your kids had to have a, the girls had to have a Cabbage Patch doll or they just weren't cool. So parents were going crazy. It was like the very first Black Friday fight started after Cabbage Patch dolls started a new tradition in our country. It's great. And so, but I just remember that. And then later on, I was a youth pastor and I remember the little kids in the church wanted Tickle Me Elmos. Come on, anyone remember those? Why would you even want those anyway? I mean, those things were kind of creepy, these little Tickle Me Elmos. But you had to, it was like parents had to get Tickle Me Elmos for their kids. Now with Amazon, I think there's less of that frenzy. But there's still that something inside of us that just says, I just want to get this for my kids. I want them to kind of feel like they fit in. I just want, and I go through that all the time. 
And I have to battle that at Christmas because I think it's fun watching my kids open gifts and I think it's fun lavishing it on them, but it is very fine line between I'm being materialistic on their behalf and teaching them if you just have a little more, then you're going to be accepted. So that's something that pops up and it's very subtle often. The next one is this, the way we compare ourselves is our life's circumstances. We look at the circumstances of our lives and we look at others and say, well, you know, it's, it's really not fair. In this case, Cain and Abel, he says, well, you, you have a better job than I have. Of course you're going to have a better offering because you have more money. We can look at others and say, you know, if, if I had the marriage they had, if I had the spouse that person had, if I had the kids that they had, if I could retire early like he retired early or like she retired early, if I had the skills she has to public speak, or I have whatever it is, we, we look at that, and again, these are so subtle, maybe you don't think of it, but when we start thinking the if-onlys, if only I would have been born into a different family, if only my parents would have saved up for college and I wouldn't have come out in debt, if only I would have studied more, or whatever it is, or we, we look at all of these if-onlys in our lives, and we can look at others and say, well, it's not fair, they had it easier, they had it differently. And it's very easy, the saying, the grass is always greener, it's a saying for a reason, because it feels that way. I remember talking with uh, some young mothers, and I've heard this many times before, and you can talk to one who's a, a, a working mom, and the other's a stay-at-home. And this is, it probably applies for, the parent, for men as well, if you're stay-at-home or working. But I know in this case, I was just talking recently to a couple, one was uh, a stay-at-home mother, and wishing that she could have a job and be contributing and, and feeling like a grown-up and, and doing more in, to help with the family. So wishing she was in the workforce. And the, one, the mom who was working was wishing she could be at home with her kids and, and raising them and, and experiencing that part of their lives. And it's so easy for us to always look at what someone else has, wish they had it, and don't realize they wish they have what you have. Again, because we're looking at the highlight reels and not always the behind the scenes. But that one creeps in in many, many ways. All the time. Why is it that their, their family gets to travel so much? Why is it that their marriage seems so perfect? Why is it that they got to retire early? Because they didn't work at a church, that's why. And then, you know, but we can easily wonder those things. How does it creep into your life? The third area where we get involved in comparisons is spiritual lives, our spiritual life. And in this case, there's two things. One, it might be comparing your, comparing your spirituality to others in this room. Well, I, you know, I don't really, I'm not as Christian-y as they are. I'm not like them, but I didn't come from their family, or they have more Bible knowledge, or my relationship with God's a little different because I've made different mistakes, and we can get involved in comparing our spiritual walks with others and even envying those. And there's another one, but it's totally different that creeps up, and that's envying the spiritual life of those who don't even have one. Envying the lives of those who aren't here on a Sunday morning. Because they read the surf report and there's a big swell coming in and they said, I don't have anything else to do, so I'm going surfing today. And it's easy to think, wow, they have it easier. They get to just live for themselves, do what they want. In case you think I'm the only one who's ever thought this way, I want to point your attention to Psalm chapter 73. 
And in Psalm 73, if you want to look there, go ahead. If not, it starts off, I'll tell you in a minute, when my iPad can find it. See, they have no excuse here. In Psalm chapter 73, it starts off and it says, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pains in their death. Their body is fat, which back then was good. <laughs> They're not in trouble as other men, nor they plague like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run wild. In other words, they get to live any way they want to live, and it seems to be just fine. And as for me, I'm trying to live this life where I know the Lord and I'm seeking the Lord and I'm involved in generosity and community and I'm doing all these things and kind of living my life transformed by who God is, how he's transforming me. But sometimes I look at those outside the family of faith and I think they've got it easier. And they have something better. I know as I have talked with a lot of young people who kind of wrestle with that. Maybe you grew up in the church and you look around and you see other people and you think, what do they know that I don't know? Maybe their life is better than mine. Maybe a life apart from Christ would be easier, more life-giving. So we find ourselves actually even comparing our spiritual lives to those who don't even have one, wishing we had what they had. I love the Reminder in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17, it says this, Don't let your heart envy sinners, but live in fear of the Lord. He acknowledges here, writing the Proverbs, that it's so easy for our hearts to look at those apart from God and say, kind of want their life. I got to be honest, I've worked at a church my, pretty much my entire career, for sure the, most of, the whole time with my kids. And when holidays come up, I'm usually here. Weekends come, I'm here. Yeah, I get time off from time to time. But it is very easy to envy people's lifestyles outside of this and even envy a lot of you when you have a good football game you want to watch. You can blow this off. Or I'm just watching it online, Ryan. (laughs) It's very easy to think, man, that seems easier. It'd be nice. So what's the solution to these? If these are the areas that kind of grab at our hearts, where do we find a biblical response where I believe we actually find freedom and truth? Let me just give you a few. The first one is this. Instead of uh, comparing our stuff, let's be people who practice gratitude. Let's learn to give thanks for what we do have. You know, if you go through scripture, there are hundreds and hundreds of verses that remind us to give thanks to the Lord, to give thanks for other people, to give thanks for every situation. We have hundreds and hundreds of reminders because we need that reminder hundreds and hundreds of times. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord for his great love. Give thanks to the Lord. Be people of thanksgiving. It is all the way through scripture. So can we practice gratitude? God, I don't have the big house, but I thank you for a roof over my head. God, I may not have a car, really nice car, but I have a car. Okay, I don't even have a car, I have a bike. Maybe I don't have that, we have a bus system. (laughs) Lord, I thank you for what I have. Thank you for what you've given me. Or maybe I can't eat out at restaurants every night of the week, but I thank you that I am not going hungry. God, I thank you that I have clothes to wear. 
I thank you for what you've given me. And it's, let's be thankful even for the tough things because the tough things, the challenging things shape us. They help us learn about the character and the heart of God. They help us to learn what really matters in the world. So let's not just be grateful for everything you think is good. Let's be grateful for everything. That's biblical. God, thank you for the life you've given me. Let's practice gratitude. It is amazing what gratitude does to your attitude. I I didn't even mean to do that, but that kind of works. (laughs) That preaches. (laughs) Researchers have found that if you practice gratitude in your life, that it will change your countenance. Why do people feel more depressed after Facebook? Because they're not being grateful or being envious. The next thing is this. Instead of comparing your lives with others, how about we celebrate lives with others? In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it tells us to weep with those who weep, but rejoice with those who rejoice. Let's learn how to celebrate the successes of others. Hey, you got a new job? So great, I'm so happy for you. You just got a new house? That is awesome, I'm great, that is cool. I wanna celebrate with you. You you got married? I wanna celebrate with you. Again, I know some of you single young adults I I talked to one earlier this year who said, I don't want to see one more proposal posted on Facebook. (laughs) And I know that's challenging. I know that's hard. But what if we learn to celebrate? You know what? That is awesome that you have found that. Now, sometimes it's going to start here, but you don't feel it here. Sometimes we just need to start celebrating with people out loud and consciously praying, God, help me to actually feel what I'm saying right now. Help me believe what I'm saying because I don't, but I know it's good. I want to rejoice. I was thinking of, as a parent, I, I, I love celebrating for others, but you know, when I watch my kids like play sports, I got to be honest, okay, I'm going to confess here, I don't really care if the other kids don't do well because <laughs> it makes my kids look better. <laughs> there will be times I kind of secretly, there's someone who plays the same position as one of my sons. And they screw up. I'm kind of secretly like, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just being real here. (laughs) Because that just means he's going to, my kid's going to get a better chance. (laughs) And yes, we've said said the prayer that's like, I don't care if we lose this game, Lord, but please don't let it be my kid's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else, whatever. (laughs) On that area, it's hard for me to see a kid who's in the same position as mine and really say like, that is so great. He's doing well. So awesome that he's succeeding. And and talk with the parents like, I'm really grateful for your family. That's really cool that that's going well. But we need to start by saying it and start praying, God, help me believe this. Help me believe it. And it might be at work. It's great that someone got this raise. It's so cool that you just got whatever it is. But let's celebrate with others. Let's weep when they weep, but let's rejoice when they rejoice. I was thinking of some of uh, my friends, and I call them my favorite friends in the world. You have those good friends, but you have those friends that you just go, you're my favorite people. You have those? I mean, hopefully you're somebody's favorite friend. But I realize, does that sound not fair? I know, I know. But I have my favorite friends, and those are the ones that I just love to be with. And I realize the common thread is they were super encouraging, and they felt very genuine for my successes. They were really good at celebrating with me. And the other thing I think is good that we can learn in the church is let's not be afraid to build people up and encourage them. I think sometimes in the church, we're so afraid of people becoming prideful that we don't want to build them up. We don't want to encourage them. We don't want to celebrate with them or they'll become, you know, too into themselves. 
But I think, what if we are the church? We should be the most encouraging community of people there is. Let's celebrate one another. Let's practice that. And when we do that, those, that envy and comparisons and jealousy starts to go away. Starts to go away. The final thing to think about instead of comparing our spiritual lives with others is let's meditate on the character of God. Instead of seeking the image of others and their approval, what if we sought after the image and likeness of God? What if we trained our hearts to spend time reflecting on who he is? See, because I didn't tell you, but Psalm 73, as it continues, he starts off and says, I almost slipped. I almost fell because I looked at everyone else, all the people living their own lives for only themselves, the selfishness, and it seemed good. But as he goes on, he says, and then... Then I started thinking about eternity. I came into the sanctuary of the Lord and I started reflecting on who he is. I started reflecting on God's character and his plan and I realized that actually that lifestyle of living for yourself was leading to destruction. It wasn't actually giving people life, it was taking life. And he even says like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, you've you've woken me up. As he goes on, he ends with this and says, as for me, in the verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So we see in Psalm 73, he goes from envying the lives of others to the end saying, wait, the more I think about who my God is, the more I find that all I need is found in him. The life I want is right here all along. I want to invite the worship team up, and as they make their way up, the big question is, so how can we do this? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm told to not envy and compare myself and look at others, that doesn't always, I can't just say like, okay, great advice, now I'll do that. But when we really find that we already have all we need and we rehearse that truth in our lives, that's where we really can be people of, of encouragement, of gratitude, of gratefulness, people who are content. In Proverbs, sorry, Philippians chapter four, Paul is writing. And Paul says, hey, I've lived my life. I've had times where I had everything I could possibly need. And I've had times when I had nothing. There's been times when I experienced great success and there's times when I experienced great failure. I've had all the highs and all the lows that life could give me. And Paul leaves, it ends with that and says, I have found the secret to being content in every situation. And when we're waiting for that big secret, the very next thing he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, that verse is not just about, hey, you can do anything you want. That's the secret to contentment. We can use, misuse that verse. That Bible verse is written on the back of my Steph Curry's basketball shoes. I thought it was to help me hit three-point shots. It's not. It's, Lord, even when I can't hit those three-point shots, I have all I need in you. It's, Lord, even on my worst day, I have all I need in you. And on my best day, I actually have all I need in you, not in me. See, the secret is all things through Christ. It's reminding our hearts that what Christ did on the cross is all we need. It declares that we are significant in God's eyes. We are approved by him because of what he did on the cross. And everything that we need is found in Christ. 
When we believe that truth, we rehearse that truth, we soak ourselves in that truth, it frees us to look at others. It frees us to be content, to accept this life we have because we know where true hope and life is found and it's in Jesus. So as we end our time here, I just want to invite you, I know for some of us, we need to be reminded of this because it's easy to look everywhere else thinking there's something better out there. And this morning, I think the truth we all need to be spoken over us is in Christ, you are approved. In Christ, you are accepted. In Christ, you have what you need. In Christ, you are as loved as you will ever be in him. So let's pray, and then we're going to respond with a couple songs here. God, we thank you. We thank you that... Lord, even though sin is crouching at our door and there are times when we let it master over us, that that's already been finished in Christ. That's been taken care of. Lord, and there are times when we look at other people's stuff and think, if I only had that, or someone else's life and think, if only I could have lived that way. We think that we'll have more. And God, but in you, we find this freedom to be content, to be thankful And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you help us not just to think those truths, but to truly believe them. And so speak to us now, Lord, and remind us of how good you are. Remind us of who we are in you and help us to believe that truth. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.